0: In session with Dr. Fadi Holakwi. Good evening, and welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Holakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. I'm not in the studio. I'm doing the show remotely. So in advance, a big thank you to Amir, who is allowing for this to happen. And you might have noticed I didn't do any shows last week. I might share a bit about why that is so um, at the third segment. But because I didn't do any shows last week, I'm a little bit behind on the books of the week. So first, let me announce the book for this week that I will talk about on next Monday's show. It is Helgoland by Carlo Rovelli. Helgoland, Making Sense of the Quantum Revolution. And I've heard of Carlo Rovelli, and uh, he's he's an interesting writer and physicist. And in this book, he, I guess, simplifies some um, notions about quantum mechanics and quantum theory. I know it's a very complex issue. We'll see how he's able to simplify it and, and what he has to say. But I'm looking forward to reading that book again. Helgoland by Carlo Rovelli. So I'm going to do two books um, tonight. The first one is from two weeks ago, and it is Kari by Amruta Patil. Kari, which is spelled K-A-R-I, by Amruta Patil. And uh, Amruta Patil is a artist. Um, also, she's um, a painter, writer. She's a very talented artist that I connected with through social media, Um, a while ago, and then um, wanted to read one of her books and was able to get my hands on this one that I think is one of the first books she released back in 2008, Um, and it's a quite interesting book. Now, it's always tough when I have done works of fiction on the show because books of fiction are a little bit harder to talk about. I mean, you don't want to tell the story not just because you don't want to give spoilers, but really the the book does it much better than I can do in in summarizing it. Um, But this book also, on top of that, is visually very stunning and adds a lot to the story because it is a graphic novel. So um, the pictures are quite fascinating and add a lot to the experience. So again, that's another thing that's hard to convey or share um, over the, the radio. But I will give my shot on sharing some of my thoughts on the book and why I think it is an important book to read and why I'm glad I read it. Um, So again, the book is called Kari, and it takes place uh, really with a very intense beginning, a attempted joint suicide by Kari, who is the the book is named after this character and Ruth, who uh, you figure are lovers and they jump and they both survive. Ruth survives on a safety net. Kari's not so lucky. He, Uh, basically lands in sewage and he has to crawl out of that. But in some interesting way, they split up from that point forward, at least in the book, that's what you see. Um, But the book touches on many important issues, which is what I'll try to focus on in what I discussed today. Uh, We see that, Kari, or you learn, that even actually you can't quite tell, at least my experience, is this individual male or female um, and, and much else, obviously, about sexuality, but that starts to become clear that she is a a female, as people call her she, um, and that she is uh, homosexual, she's a lesbian, and these issues are very important aspects of the experience you have in reading the book that in some ways you can tell from most people she is hiding her sexuality, uh, and that experience comes up throughout the book and also in being a woman and what a woman should want or their place, so to speak, Society also comes up as well. Uh, The book, I believe, was written in 2008 or released in 2008, but in in a lot of ways, sadly, we can say um, many of the issues still apply. Now, one thing I found quite interesting was when Kari has a visit from her parents. And when her parents visit, first she knows that they might not be happy with her life. She's living with multiple people and has roommates and also just the um, situation that she's in she doesn't think her parents will like that but what what i found interesting i thought was a very um, important human commentary about the human experience was that what kari was doing was trying to keep her parents busy and occupied taking them places keeping them entertained and also continuously talking so as to not leave space for them to share their judgment or possibly, uh, you could say, ask her more about her life because she knew they might not like her life or like, um, you know, things about her and what's going on. And I thought that was interesting because we see this happening now. When most people think of social anxiety, more commonly people become very quiet or they're more likely to not say much in social situations. But another way to respond to the anxiety That comes in social situations especially if it's in the sense of not feeling comfortable with yourself is actually to over speak and to talk so much in a way if I show you so much surface you can't see much deeper or I don't really get seen and I thought that was an interesting dynamic that came up early in the book seeing her interacting with her parents um, something I've seen even with families I've worked with where they might say, oh, I talk to my, my son or daughter a lot, let's say a teenage son or daughter, but we learn they don't know much about them. And their teenager has learned how to fill the space and to share enough or even a lot of things that they're comfortable sharing, but not revealing the deeper things that actually might be even more significant, but that they think the listener, in this case, what I'm talking about the parents, wouldn't want to hear or wouldn't like to hear. So uh, when I saw that part, I thought that was uh, kind of a nice commentary. And of course, I'm saying nice, and it's so interesting and all that, but also very sad, because we consider that here, Kari knows that if she shows herself to her parents, she won't be loved, or her fears, maybe she won't be loved or accepted, or that she won't hear the end of what they might say, if they get more into her Life. And so that's a theme that runs throughout the book that Kari clearly does not seem comfortable, or I should say, knows that others would not be comfortable or would not treat her well based on her sexuality. And so there's this way that she is hiding it. And so that was, of course, as relevant then, even more before, but still is relevant for many people when we consider being in the closet. I've mentioned this notion before that I came across more recently that we sort of think, well, the person is in the closet, you know, they're hiding. But really, society has built a closet around that individual, which has made them feel like they have something to hide. When really, they shouldn't have anything to hide, but it's society at large that makes them feel something about themselves is not okay, is not worth. Um, being seen, or that should be hidden from other people. There would be no being in the closet if uh, there was no potential stigma or judgment for being non-heterosexual. So that's something interesting, and you see that very strongly in Kari, the main character, throughout the book of dealing with this challenge of knowing her sexuality might not be accepted by many people, um, or that she is better off hiding it. And so that Um, it was a sad theme throughout the book as we see her uh, going through this. And now relating to this, what I just talked about, that people, let's say, with social anxiety who don't feel comfortable in social situations, they might be hiding themselves. And so sadly, whatever the reasoning, here we're talking about someone's sexuality specifically, but the person feels that who they are, what they are is not good enough or won't be loved and accepted by people around them, whether it's family, friends, people they're just meeting, and so they're trying to hide something. And so we talk about being comfortable in your own skin, and that's something I sense throughout the book, that theme as well. But when we look at being comfortable in your own skin, of course, that's a very individual experience in a way, or at least it seems to be. How do you feel about yourself? how much do you love yourself like yourself accept yourself what are your insecurities Um, how do you value yourself and so when we view it in this way it seems like a very individual and only individual experience it's only up to you and it's only your um, feeling that matters which is true at the end of the day that's what we're looking at the bottom line is how do you feel about yourself but Your experience of yourself does not happen in a vacuum. It is not something that you alone are by yourself viewing yourself and judging yourself and coming to some conclusion. Sometimes we think, oh, well, that's how you should be. You shouldn't care what people think. And, of course, we do want to minimize the way we get impacted by the opinions of others. But we all have to be real with ourselves that we all are being constantly impacted by how people view us and view different aspects of who we are. And of course, sexuality is a big one that still, society has a long way to uh, make progress on in making sure that everyone can feel comfortable being who they are. To make them feel more comfortable in their own skin by saying who you are in that skin is okay, does not need to be changed, definitely is not something that needs to be looked down upon or stigmatized, as it still is, but has been even more heavily throughout history, that you are not wrong or bad for being that way. And when you don't receive that message that you are bad, you're less likely to internalize it. But if from birth you have heard that not being straight, for example, is bad and wrong and even immoral or evil um, or a sickness or all sorts of other horrible things, well, of course, that's going to impact how you feel about yourself. You know, we say don't compare yourself to others or make that judgment on your own. But really, if you think about it, almost every way that we judge ourselves does come from how we view other people. If you are happy about something about yourself, you might say, oh, it's just me thinking about me. But really, it's because you're looking at it in the context of being human most of the time. How do other people view this or how am I compared to other people? We try to turn it off and I would encourage all of us to try to be more aware of this and try to be less impacted by comparison and sometimes we call it comparison culture but this is of course what we're trying to aspire towards but we know every day we're being impacted by the judgments and views of others so this um of course i read this book during pride month but it's relevant in any month being aware of how we judge and view others and how much that impacts them and how it can impact how comfortable they feel in their own skin And of course, if they expect that we're going to judge them, it's not just about being comfortable in their own skin for anyone. They are trying to protect themselves. And so this um, comes up a lot in the families I work with. In encouraging them as parents, especially when you're trying to talk to your children very commonly, teenagers, they'll say, well, they don't tell me anything. Now, of course, part of this is developmental when kids enter their teenage years, um, it's a signal or a time of individuality, of learning about themselves, of identity, exploration, and and trying out different things and roles and ways of being. Also, they want to be more private. They have now things that maybe they want to keep from you. And also, they are more likely to look to their peers rather than you. So they're more uh, keen on sharing with their peers than they are to the parents. But also, as parents, you have to be aware of how you respond when they tell you things. So parents will say, I want my kids to tell me things. They, I tell them they can be open, they can tell me anything. But how you respond is going to be critical in determining whether or not they're going to feel comfortable to tell you something. If they said, I did this, and you go crazy and yell at them, well, of course, they're less likely to bring up something else. Or if you make them feel judged for doing something, making a mistake, they're not going to share their mistakes with you, even though all humans are going to go through mistakes. And actually, the teenagers and adolescents is a time where probably more mistakes are going to be made, and actually maybe it's quite okay for that to happen. So I thought that was interesting, um, looking at that throughout the book. This theme of how do we treat others? Because you see Kari throughout the book, just hearing different things, getting harassed by different people, even by her boss in different ways, um, by friends saying certain things like, "Oh, you know, you, you know, woman needs a man, and you should do this," and different types of messages that. Um, or maybe won't be very unfamiliar to lots of people, not just for someone who's dealing with sexuality, but in general, looking at gender roles and gender norms. And the book does a great job of exploring these different concepts through an interesting story and also some fascinating and uh, beautiful illustrations as well. So uh, I found it a very interesting read. I'm glad I finally got to read it. It's a little bit harder to find the book for some people that had messaged me, but I was able to find it on Amazon um, and I'm sure other booksellers as well. I think it's published by HarperCollins, so you should be able to find it. But again, that was the book Kari by Amruta Patil. Um, hope you'll check it out. And let's go to our first commercial break. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadir Lakwi. We'll be right back. <music> Welcome back. As I mentioned at the top of the show, doing two books today because I didn't do any shows last week, which I'll talk about in the third segment. So now getting to the book of the week from last week, which was The Hidden Habits of Genius by Craig Wright. The Hidden Habits of Genius, Beyond Talent, IQ, and Grit, Unlocking the Secrets of Greatness. And um, as any listener of the show knows, I get a lot of recommendations from many people, but many of them end up coming from my brother, Parham. He was reading this book and told me about it, and it seemed so interesting that I ordered it right away uh, and read it this week and really did find it uh, interesting, fascinating. Uh, I think the just the notion of genius makes people interested or excited, and I was uh, definitely no different in that sense. And the author, Craig Wright, that teaches a course about genius and geniuses at Yale for many years now. And so, in some ways, this book is a, uh, not culmination, but maybe a collection of the ideas and themes that come up in that class or his um, insights from teaching that class. And and a genius, as he says, is a term we use a lot. We might say this, um, you know, mathematician is a genius, of course. We might say this singer is a genius. We might even say As he says, some athletes are geniuses like Michael Phelps or Roger Federer or different people like that. But as he says, um, not everyone that we call genius would fall into his definition. And he does share that throughout history, people have used different definitions. But for him, he provides this definition early in the book, which I'll share with you now. A genius is a person of extraordinary mental powers whose original works or insights change sustainability change society in some significant way for good or for ill across cultures and across time. For so me, It was interesting that he said for ill, and really throughout the book, he didn't share any uh, geniuses who their work caused harm um, to people or society, but he included that there. But so as you can see, there's an important part that it's not just about having extraordinary mental powers, which I think for a lot of people, that's what we think about for genius. Uh, but he says original works or insights change society in some significant way um, across cultures and across time. So that part is where someone, like he says, Michael Phelps, would not meet his definition of a genius because although he was incredible at what he did in, in swimming and set all sorts of records and things like that, but there was nothing creative or he didn't change swimming. Now, maybe I could see someone making an argument that he changed some aspects of swimming or some ways maybe people swim, but nonetheless for him, uh, that would not meet the criteria of genius. And the book is is a fun read. I mean, it's it's not like it's fun and light, but it's fun in the sense that there's lots of anecdotes, and he discusses the lives of many geniuses throughout the book. And there's various chapters, and essentially he breaks down 14 different hidden habits, as he calls them, or different ideas that relate to genius and each one gets its own chapter. But there's also things that he discusses that explain what genius is not. And IQ is one of those things, and neither is high, let's say, SAT scores or GRE scores, things that we might think make someone a genius if they score a certain level, even Some people say if you have an IQ above this score, you are a genius. But for him, that's not going to cut the grade. And also, it's much more complicated than that. And people with a high IQ, they can be geniuses, but many of them are not. And actually, most of them are not. And so it's much more complicated than that. Um, He also talks about how we can fall in love or be so fascinated by the child prodigy. I mean, it's always interesting, and I'm sure if you're on social media even a little bit, you'll come across these videos of, here's a four-year-old who plays Mozart, or a five-year-old who's memorized all the state capitals in the United States, or different things like that, and different prodigies, these children who are showing incredible ability in some either mental or Uh, physical or performance like instrument type of a um, endeavor and we're fascinated by them and it is quite interesting because I think they're so cute and then also so incredible in what they do and we're just fascinated by them but most prodigies actually don't turn out to be geniuses in the way that he defines it in the sense that they make a change because a lot of those people that we're talking about, these kids, they're doing something exceptional, especially for their age, but they're usually doing something that's just copying someone else's work or memorizing something, uh, which is incredible for their age again, but not actually creating something new. And what's fascinating, he talks about don't treat your child like a prodigy, because usually what happens when we have a child who's a prodigy, who reproduces, the work of someone else so well from a young age we teach them just to keep following the rules and doing things the the quote-unquote right way which means the way that it's been done and also discourage them from making mistakes and usually they are good at not making mistakes which can create this sense of perfectionism that i shouldn't make mistakes i shouldn't do things wrong and we want to innovate and create But we always have to be ready to try something new and different, which means you're going to fail and make mistakes. So interestingly, we usually think of, well, if a child is a prodigy, they're going to be a creative genius. But as he discusses, that actually doesn't usually turn out to be the case because we treat them like prodigies, which actually interferes with them becoming geniuses in the way that he describes of creating something um, with their work. So I thought that was interesting. But so going through these different... Um, characteristics and these hidden uh, habits. So the first one is work ethic, which we might not be too surprised by. And we think of most geniuses. He talks about some are scientists like Einstein and Stephen Hawking. He talks about artists like Vincent van Gogh and Pablo Picasso, also composers like Mozart, Beethoven, Wagner. Um, You know, all of them, when we think about them, they worked incredibly hard. that's not much of a a surprise, but that often is the case that they've worked very hard or they have a a strong work ethic, which actually relates to one of the other characteristics as well. They also are very resilient, and often they've went through challenges. I thought it was interesting. At one point, he talked about how um, although you need free time, to be able to really pursue something enough to become a genius in the way that he describes it. But you also can't be born from too wealthy of a family, or rarely that's the case. Charles Darwin was, but most other geniuses that he describes in the book did not have a very wealthy upbringing, but most of them were not very, very poor either. Because when that's the case, you tend not to have the time and resources to pursue other things. And this actually might 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 want to make us think about letting people live in extreme poverty, as I've discussed on this show. I think it's inhumane we're hurting them, but also society is missing out on the contributions of these individuals and what they actually could create if we gave them more of an opportunity, more security and stability um, to then be able to pursue different things. And the next characteristic is originality, which, of course... If we look at his definition of genius, which includes creating something new that has uh, an impact, you need to be original. And this for me is interesting. He discusses this too. Um, when parents look at their kids, uh, we very often are are telling our kids to, okay, just do what's right and don't do anything that different and follow the ways of doing things. But the people we tend to admire and parents admire, are the ones who did things differently. You only remember, really, the individuals from history who did something different, who were bold and original. But it's funny that we encourage our kids, both as parents but also in schools, to kind of draw between the lines, so to speak. Uh, But it's not actually allowing for the creativity to be pursued because we're telling them, keep doing the same things. So it's funny to me how we sometimes praise people from the past for certain reasons, or even for the present. But then if we look at our kids, we tell them, no, 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 don't do the risky thing. Do the safe thing. Don't be an original, be like everyone else, while still telling them we want you to believe in yourself too. It's kind of a a contradictory message. Um, Jeannie says that he describes have a childlike imagination. And so there's some interesting quotes that you maybe have seen from different artists, um, basically saying that to be a good artist, you have to capture... The thinking and imagination of a child, or I forgot if it was Picasso or Van Gogh, saying something like, um, "My whole life I tried to learn how to paint as a child." Basically, so viewing the world in that way with that imagination is very important. Um, next is having an insatiable curiosity. So geniuses are very curious. They, they, it's not just that they kind of want to know something; they almost feel compelled. I need to know or understand why this is this way or why we can't figure out this problem and so they are uh, always uh, constantly trying to um, change things uh, or figure things out and then of course the next one is passion so they are very passionate which is not surprising they enjoy what they're doing and here he also cites things like flow where they might forget to eat or sleep when they get into that state because they find it so interesting and fascinating, and they become so obsessed with trying to figure something out um, that they really don't want to stop working on it. They don't want to do anything else. They also tend to be rebellious. That's another one. So again, they have to be breaking the rules in some way, doing something different, doing something new. And this is another one of those that I think it's interesting that we enjoy these types of geniuses, their work later on, but often being around them or if you're contemporaries, you might not enjoy them. This is something he actually mentions, Martin Luther King Jr. throughout the book, that many people who now might quote him, especially on Martin Luther King Jr. Day here in the United States, maybe wouldn't have liked the things he was doing when he was alive, creating protests, civil disobedience, the things he was fighting for, but it's very easy after the fact to just praise him, um, but actually looking at what he stood for and what he did, and if you le- uh, lived during the disruption of things he might have been doing, you probably wouldn't like it. You know, I think we've all experienced this. Even you might say, "Yeah, good for the people that have protested throughout history," but if you're sitting in traffic and you find out the road is blocked because people are protesting, people tend to look at it very differently and think, oh, okay, well, okay, we got the idea," or you know. But please, just like, don't block my way. So we don't mind hearing about people getting inconvenience in the past, or we don't even think about it. We just think of what this genius did. But when we're living through inconveniences and disruptions, we usually don't like it. So again, another one of those where we might enjoy the fruits of a genius's labor later on, but we don't like uh, at times experiencing the disruption that is caused by someone doing things differently. Um, geniuses also do what he calls cross-border thinking, which is basically that you can combine elements from different perspectives, ways of thinking, um, even you know schools of thought to create something new. And oftentimes people will say when we look at creativity, it's not that you're creating something completely brand new, but at times you're recombining things in a way that's never been done before. So the elements you're bringing together aren't new, but those elements maybe have never been put together the way that you are now doing it. Um, Also, he mentions uh, a chapter on preparation, which I thought was interesting, because people sometimes think of this uh, genius who just gets inspired all of a sudden and has an aha moment, or as Archimedes had that eureka moment. And we think that's how these things come about, which sometimes it's true, people have these aha moments, But the preparation piece is very important because what actually is happening is the person's been working at a problem sometimes for years and years and years and then comes to that aha moment so although it might seem like luck serendipity uh, a muse came to them and hit them with something that now they're lucky to have this revelation really it's not some kind of blank revelation or a revelation onto a blank slate Things have been formulating and percolating for years, often, uh, until that realization comes about. And related to that, um, there's a whole chapter on this Hidden Habits of Genius about relaxation. And so, this talks about how people often, and you may have experienced this yourself, have come to great realizations at times, or a new idea or thought, when they're doing something like going for a walk, or taking a shower, And so we see a lot of these geniuses throughout history would sometimes have their biggest insights going for a walk or a light run or while they were in the shower or doing some kind of mindless activity. So even with the exercise, if it's pushing you too hard, you're probably going to get focused on the exercise part and exerting that effort and focusing on that to really have this type of insight that's great for a lot of the time, but doesn't accomplish what we're talking about here. Um, But what he is mentioning is that it has to be more of a mindless, even if it's maybe going for a drive or being on a train, but those types of things actually often can lead to realizations or even sleep itself. The adage of sleep on it uh, is important because what we find is when you have a problem in your mind, there's a way that you unconsciously work on that problem. Uh, That's why these aha moments can happen that way. Sometimes when you're not thinking about it, the pieces can kind of come together, fit together in a way that you never have thought about them before. So sometimes when we're looking at a problem, we get a little bit blinded by everything else and can only see it in one way. Taking a step back, going for a walk, um, not even thinking about it for a couple of days and coming back to it or not even coming back to it, it might come to you while you're in this relaxation state, that was interesting. And of course, I like that he couples it. There's the last two chapters about this, these different habits is relaxation and then concentration. So also it goes back to work ethic was the first one, but also it's not just, okay, you don't have to try hard or think hard about the problems and you're just going to figure out these amazing new creative solutions. Now uh, you have to work incredibly hard. And so he shares these stories of different writers and scientists um, throughout history and how hard they worked, and so that was quite interesting as well. Now, what also came up was that, as I mentioned, we don't like living through the disruption at times of geniuses, but not only that, but interpersonally, often geniuses throughout history, or how we've labeled them geniuses, tend to be really horrible people to be in relationship with or friendship with, but even especially romantic partners. So Steve Jobs was notorious for being Uh, a jerk, and he actually uses those kinds of terms in the book. Even worse, I didn't know the extent, but Pablo Picasso treated his uh, friends, especially his romantic partners, the women in his life, horribly. I mean, just the things that were in the book, I mean, it seemed like constant physical abuse, treating them like uh, they were less than. There was some phrase that they were either goddesses or doormats, which actually um, sounds, and this is not to diagnose him at all, but at least the theme of, borderline personality disorder where you idealize and devalue, but he treated people in his life horribly. And so this is something else to consider when we're looking at geniuses, at least the way they have been um, portrayed or we've treated them throughout history. Oftentimes they're really horrible people to be around. Uh, Not all of them, but often that can be the case. I definitely don't think it means to be a genius. You have to be a bad person to be around or that it justifies it at all, which I'll touch on in a second, um, but that uh, we just see this throughout history that that has been the case. And so I think part of that reason why this can happen is we also treat geniuses, I think, too highly. We should definitely appreciate and respect the work that people do that has a big impact on society. But I think one of the problems I've seen, and I've talked about this before, is that We put people too much on a pedestal, and I don't think that's okay at all. And so I think we should admire the work that geniuses do, but that they should not be elevated the way that we unfortunately elevate them in history. Uh, I've talked about how, you know, there's a lot of issues coming up about statues, and should we have a statue for this person or that person? Should we take it down? I actually think we maybe should not have statues for any person. Like, why do we idealize and put people into a godlike status, they did something good and great, and we can admire that. But I do wonder about these issues or the benefits of idealizing and then also these negative parts that come about when we make people larger than life or when people think they might become larger than life and how that impacts things. That's a topic that I've talked about before, and I'll definitely talk about more on some future shows. But for now, I'll wrap up. I really did enjoy the book, Um, The Hidden Habits of Genius by Craig Wright. Uh, Very fascinating. And as he talks about it at the end of the book, even reading it, you might not be sure if you would want to be a genius based on the lives they lived and the way that they were, but it does give you some insights. Even, I think, not just to be a genius, but how to help you think different, to share your gifts with the world. They might not all change the world completely or in some huge way, but I think everyone does have hidden gifts or more gifts within them if they Um, allow themselves to cultivate them, have the courage to express them, and then work hard to make them better as well. So I thought that was interesting. So I think there's some take-home messages. It's not just about being a genius, but how we can all think a little differently or think a little bit more um, boldly and courageously. Let's go into our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back as I mentioned uh, at the start of the show and you might have noticed last week I didn't do any shows and I try to be a little aware of how much I share about my personal life but I did want to share a bit tonight about about this and some concepts that I've talked about on the show that relate to it that are not um, I don't want to make it about that only but let me just get into it rather than getting uh, beating around the bush so um, sadly My grandmother has fallen ill. She is uh, close to 91 years of age and uh, very lucky and grateful to have known her since I was born and have her in my life. But I had to travel to to be by her side as um, she was in the hospital and now she is home, but still very weak. And you don't know really how long we ever have, but does seem to be... Closer to death and it's hard to even talk about these things and I'm trying to be careful how much I get into it because it might make me emotional but um, I wanted to share that nonetheless so it has been a very difficult process but as I mentioned I'm very grateful for it as well and uh, I'm grateful because of all the years I've had with her uh, you know, And all that she did for me, I'm very grateful, and i told her that many times, and I've been telling her that. Uh, and I'm also grateful for the moments that I've had, and even the ones I'm having now, that at times have been painful and, and difficult and are painful and difficult to see someone you love um, going through what are their possible last days, and you don't really know when. But I'm grateful to be here and to be a part of it in that sense. Um, And it's a reminder, of course, I know there's some cliche things of hug your loved ones and tell your loved ones that you love them, which um, uh, they're cliche because they're true. But I did want to remind everyone of that and also for myself to remember it and and to remember that, yes, my grandmother does seem to be more clearly near the end of her life. But we, we don't know how much time we will have with one another. And so this brings up this notion of our own death and mortality, which is something we tend to avoid or we try to avoid. And actually, I think there's a paradox here, because I think that if we were constantly preoccupied with our own death, it would make it hard to live. And so to help deal with that, we in a way try to never think about it or pretend like it won't exist. There is this way, this fallacy and, uh, that we have, and the distortion of, of reality that we can have that there will always be more time. I can always do this later. I'll always have more days, years to figure this out or do this or um, try something or tell someone I love them or pursue whatever it is that I want to do. And so I think we need to have this fallacy at some level in a way to not constantly think about death. But I think the cost is that when we think of it this way, we almost make it like we'll never die, which is the way we can feel. No one will say that, but the way we live can almost seem that way. We then don't take advantage or aren't appreciative of the moments we do have. And so it's a very dark thing to think about. But I do think it's important to think about our own death, that all of us will die. I know that sounds dark. But I say that because I care about you who are listening and also thinking about it for myself, that you don't know how long you will have. It's a beautiful life that we get to live, but we don't know how long it will be. And so I I really came across these concepts even more clearly in recently reading Irvin Yalom and his wife's book about um, death and life, realizing that. If we don't take our deaths seriously, we won't take our lives seriously. If you think you have forever to do whatever you want, then there is absolutely no rush or no urgency to do anything because you can always do it tomorrow, and in a way you feel like you'll have infinite tomorrows. But the sad truth and reality is is that we don't. And so um, seeing my grandmother going through this, and it seems like, okay, she's going through it, but always when we see someone or we hear about a death, it makes us get closer to our own. And this is one of many reasons why people avoid going to funerals, avoid talking about death, avoid visiting someone who's lost someone because we are avoiding our own deaths in a way. It's scary and painful for us, or it can be, to be closer to death. But also in this experience, um, I've worked or not worked but talked with several doctors, but also many people in hospice care who are there for people during the end of their lives and really respect and appreciate the work that they do. And even uh, hearing some of them say that often people might uh, tell them, why would you get into this line of work or that line of work where you're dealing with people when they are close to death? Um, It is sad, it is painful. But I think it's also very beautiful and I commend them for doing that work. And it also brings to mind there's this notion, well, there you know these individuals are about to die. So does it matter to help them? It could come to some people's mind. Well, should we do something about that? What's the point of investing? Even some people will say so much into someone, let's say, if they're closer to death. But then you realize that's all life is, is these experiences that we have and this also relates to um, The Hidden Spring by Mark Solms. made this concept more clear in my mind as well, and he discusses it, that, you know, really life is just these series series of experiences that we have. We don't know how many of them you're going to have, um, but that's what it is. And also what we can do is have a positive impact, no impact or maybe a negative impact on people's experiences, and I think it's a reminder that we hopefully will always choose to do our best to make people's experiences as positive as we can, to make them feel good. I also think this goes not just to humans, but really even living beings. If you can make them feel better or take away their pain, we we should strive for that. But we can have a positive impact on each other's lives and well-being and these experiences that we have. And I hope we will choose that and dedicate ourselves to trying to make people's days better, easier, Uh, make them feel good in whatever way that we can. And I'll conclude now by what might seem like changing gears when we're talking about feeling good, but it's actually about having those painful conversations, which is another one of those things that we think we'll always have another time or there'll be a better time to have it. But one, you're not guaranteed uh, always a later time to have those conversations. And two, it's never going to feel like a good time or a right time because if it's a painful or uncomfortable conversation, it's always going to be painful or uncomfortable. So you'll never want to have it in the sense that it's going to feel good in that moment. But I do encourage people always to have those conversations because you don't know if you'll have a chance. First of all, you might not have a chance and that person might be gone and you might regret never resolving things. And it's actually something that can make grief much more complicated when you have unfinished business with the individual who has passed. But also, when we consider that life is fleeting, you're missing out on days, whatever you're given, days, weeks, years, to have a better relationship with that person. So, yes, when we talk about making people feel good, uh, it's not some kind of hedonic way of just looking at do whatever feels pleasurable and good in that moment but doing the right things in the sense that it is the correct thing to do, a meaningful thing to do. And one of those things is to have those conversations with people in our lives before it is too late, because we never know when it will be too late. And so um, my grandmother is still with us, and I'm grateful for that. I'm so grateful. Uh, I didn't really have something significant to say as far as resolving something with her, But I'm so grateful that when I first arrived here to see her, she was lucid enough for us to have some nice conversations. I was able to thank her for all that she's done for me uh, throughout my life and all the love that she gave. She has always been such a selfless person that really always was just thinking of what she could do for others and for her loved ones. And so I'm very inspired by that, but I'm very touched and grateful for that and inspired by her and how how she's lived her life. Um, And again, the pain uh, I'm feeling right now, and I know I will feel as as it continues, as this process continues, how I don't regret it for a minute because I know that any pain I'm experiencing in saying goodbye to her is just a testament to my love that I had with her and for her and the relationship we got to have. And that though people may be at some point gone physically, we always carry them in us because of the way they impacted us. And yet another reminder that let's leave a legacy of having people feel good by us, which is much more in your control than anything else that you can do is how you make people feel. So I just wanted to share some of those thoughts, um, and I appreciate those of you listening. That, that I have the space to, to share that with you. I hope it wasn't just about my personal experience, but able to connect to some of you as well. Uh, that brings us to the end of tonight's show. Uh, again, a big thank you to Amir, who is in the studio. I'm currently remote, but he's allowing me to do the show because of him taking care of things there. Just thank you, Amir John. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Faye Lockley. Have a wonderful night.